welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, my guest is Juan Andres Guerrero Sade. Uh, did I say it right? Yes, you did. Juan is at the Insect Group at Recorded Future and is heavily focused on uh, threat intel and tracking nation state adversaries and one of the guys who knows everything about everything as it relates to APT activity. How are you, Juan? What are you working on today? Um, I'm good, man. It's it's great to finally sit down and do this. We've been talking about doing this podcast since you started. Um, what is the Insect Group? Well, uh, so it's a Recorded Futures uh, sort of nascent threat intel team, uh, but more importantly, uh, what's interesting to me is it's sort of it's a different kind of threat intel generation outfit. So instead of sort of ambulance chasing and trying to cover every APT that everybody else is covering and every APT that everybody else is seeing, uh, we're trying to find sort of interesting intelligence gaps. And that's where we're sort of focusing a lot of our research. So some of it might be the kind of traditional uh, malware technical analysis reports that you know, some of it might be more uh, general nation state capabilities, um, folks on the team have done really interesting work with uh, vulnerability databases and just sort of trying to find different angles to fill intelligence gaps that other people might not be working. Right. But at the same time, you still need to have uh, wide visibility because that's one of the things about a threat intel space that's interesting to me, uh, coming, uh, coming at it from the perspective of the buyer. If I'm interested in threat intel and having uh, you know, total visibility across what's happening, I need to buy uh, feeds from multiple vendors because everyone has their own level of visibility. So Kaspersky Lab has uh, certain visibility in certain areas. Palo Alto might have uh, visibility that Kaspersky doesn't have that me as a buyer would need to have. When you talk about filling in those gaps, how do you how do you stay competitive when you perhaps don't have the visibility of the others? So um, that's actually an interesting question, and it's one that uh, I was kind of hounded by for a great deal of time because, uh, you know, you and I were both at, at KL uh, before this, and, and the visibility there was quite fantastic. And it's kind of hard to, uh, to turn from that and say, well, you know, let's do it with a different data set. Uh, so everybody's data set is different. Uh, nobody's is complete. But I think there's another layer to this that we're not discussing, which is threat intel methodology, right? So everybody's got different types of sources for samples or network data or NetFlow or passive DNS or whatever. But at the end of the day, what you produce um, as a threat intel product is more guided by your analytical capabilities on the team, uh, of course, your technical capabilities for the analysis. Uh, but also how you're putting that together and how you allow yourself to present it, right? So if you're uh, terrified of, of doing attribution or, you know, you have a lot of government customers, so you don't want to talk about a certain government, uh, it really does shape what kind of product you allow your Threat Intel team to put out. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of those gaps are coming for us. You look at, ana- even looking at analyses that have been done or areas that have been researched to death, quote unquote, uh, you end up finding all sorts of interesting things like, you know, shell companies, contractors, uh, or different indications of government involvement, things that people are just, you know, they might have seen it, they might not have seen it, but they were unwilling to report it publicly. And that gives us an avenue uh, to do interesting research. 
But if I'm the CISO of a big company where nation state adversary is within my threat model and I want to turn to threat intel feeds to give me that, you know, uh, level of visibility, I still need to purchase multiple feeds. Is, is, is that kind of like the status quo in the industry today? Uh, in a way, though, I think that that speaks to the general immaturity of most companies as threat intel consumers. Um, especially since we're discussing feeds, I, I for one, I'm okay, really wait, let's let, let's back up then. What is threat intel? <laughs> okay, all right. So so we're pulling right back, uh, and and this is actually a fundamental question that never gets asked. Um, Brian Bartholomew and I recently had to to do a fair amount of work on this because we you know we tried to put together our our advanced threat intel workshop and all this stuff, and this actually took us the most time, but. Essentially, if you look at, at standard intelligence, the idea is intelligence is meant to help you, like help decision makers in an information asymmetrical space, right? So um, to, you have two adversaries, you have a defender and an adversary. The, the adversary has that much more information about what they're about to do. Uh, obviously, they know the, the means by which they're going to target the defenders. They know the means, the, the kind of tooling that they have, the kind of capabilities that they have, which means that as far as the, the information space goes, uh, there's an asymmetry there where the defenders just, you know, obviously are, are blind or have no idea uh, to what's going to be leveraged when and how against them. So the whole point of threat intel is to, to sort of turn some of that and balance some of that and, and essentially allow people to take very sparse resources and leverage them in meaningful ways. So the, even multi-million or, or, or billion dollar companies don't have uh, that much, uh, that many resources to devote to to incident response, to a threat intel team, to feeds, to sources, and so on. So you need to be able to to say, hey, you know, this is how we're going to prioritize our defense resources, and, and threat intel is meant to give you that guide, meant uh, to. Right, and threat intel is not just a, a combination of IOC IOCs and Yara rules. It's it's much more than that. In your opinion, give me a sense of what is a mature threat intelligence offering that a CISO can buy into that's beyond just IOCs and Yara rules? Well, so the whole notion of, of IOCs as a feed is actually quite disturbing to me because um, it, it actually it reminds me of, I was at a Suits and Spooks conference in, um, in London a few years back. And uh, at the time, the conference was small enough to where we, we, there was basically about 30, 40 of us sitting in one room. And uh, a few of those people were, were from GCHQ. And, and there was a woman who was uh, just obviously getting very upset as the, as the conversation went on about threat intelligence and threat intelligence. And at one point, she just looks at us and goes, you know what? It's not intelligence. It's, it's not even information. You're just throwing data at us. And, and that stuck with me. I mean, when you're talking about a feed, it's, it's just entirely the opposite of the notion of having intelligence. What you are getting is a series of data points with no context, no way of prioritizing them. You don't necessarily even know what they are. You just, you're just meant to throw them into a seam or something and, and detect them. And you know they're, they're bad. How bad? Nobody knows, but they're bad. Right. And the context is important. Why? Well, the context is, is, is important because that's where the decision-making value comes from, right? So if I give you, uh, you know, 10 hashes and one of them 
is a hyper-advanced threat actor like Dooku, and the other one is a, a piece of adware, then finding, you know, you get 10 detections and all 10 of them are in your environment. Should you really care equivalently for a piece of adware as you do for a, an advanced nation-state threat actor? Of course not. But if it's just all a feed and there's no context and you don't know why you're being targeted or how or whether something is targeted or just massive or whether it's disruptive or not, uh, then it, it's not very helpful. But the defender will tell you, listen, I just want to be able to plug something into my Splunk or whatever SIM I'm using and pinpoint that red area and just go mitigate it. I don't really care about, you know, what the TTPs are and what's going on. Why is that a, a dangerous approach? Well, I think that that speaks to the maturity of the defenders. And th this isn't to kind of put down consumers or to put down defenders. I think, you know, we're all trying our best and this is a relatively new industry and a relatively new discipline with very little guidance um, and it's normal to expect that institutions are going to be at different levels of maturity uh, but when that's your approach what that says to me uh, in evaluating a customer or evaluating a threat intel team is that you haven't had enough uh big issues to realize that you know you're you're plugging the hall of the boat with your fingers um if you think that this is just going to be a matter of remediating issues as they come along there's no need to really prioritize one over the other and it to, to me that says that you don't quite understand whose sites you're under so if, if you were really being targeted by let's say one of these uh chinese apt teams that that just keeps coming back over and over and over again um, you you would realize that it doesn't make sense to just have your incident responders continue to try and and plug this up and and take a couple of machines off the network and try to clean it up over and over again when you should at this point essentially expect them to be your neighbors. Right, you have to take this holistic approach to uh, not only remediation but understanding what the TTPs were, who the actor is, what's the context of what they do. They might be in there and you might clean up something, but the lateral movement has already happened and you need to understand, you know, what component is being handled for the lateral movement. You might do cleanup, but they might still be in there if you're not taking this entire picture into, into play. Exactly. And I mean, this happens all the time with vulnerability management too, which isn't necessarily my area, but, you know, I'll, I'll get... Um, requests all the time about the hottest, latest vulnerability. And, you know, how many people freaked out about Spectre uh, and, and are freaking out about, you know, problems in chipsets and, and CPUs? It's like, man, you're, you're, you're getting popped once a week based on attachments. You, <laughs> right, right. You're not even getting really, the basics right. Yeah, is this really where we need to... I'm not saying don't patch. I mean, obviously, patch management is a complicated issue, and you do find problems like, you know, Apache struts where, you know, had you gone uh, and, and patched that within that six-month time frame, you would have, you know, saved yourself a great deal of heartache, probably. But to, to worry about, you know, the, the latest hotness in, in vulnerabilities, it, I think it's it speaks to not knowing where your crown jewels are, what your priorities are, and, and how you really should be defending that perimeter. Yeah, it's really amazing how much this keeps popping up on this podcast, talking a lot to defenders where it's 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 really interesting to me how 
resources on what I call the basics, which is patch management, getting your password policies in place and two-factor setup properly and making sure your cloud deployments are properly configured. Like this, just everyday blocking and tackling takes up almost all the resources of an organization, uh, even if they have nation states in their threat model. Um, Because if you can't get the basics right, you are going to be popped anyway. Uh, Rob Joyce, this again is another topic that keeps coming up on my podcast. Rob Joyce did a talk at the Enigma conference in 2016 where he made the case that uh, the adversary at the nation state level, properly resourced and properly motivated, uh, will get in because they know your network better than you do through their reconnaissance and they know the products you're using better than the people who actually created that product. If that's true and that's real, how does Defender stand a chance? Hmm. Well, so do you do you subscribe to the do you subscribe to the notion that if a nation state wants to get into your network, they will, regardless? Well, uh, yes and no, uh, but I find this kind of a really problematic notion. So, so let me kind of piece that apart a little bit because. Um, so I was there for Rob Joyce's talk, and I actually got to ask a question. And and I, you know, I, I wasn't trying to grill him, but a great deal of respect for the man coming out of the position that he was coming out of, and, and giving such a relatively candid talk. Uh, I actually uh, thought that was fantastic. Might have been one of the better talks I've seen in a long, long time, just because right. of who he was, and and it, it was it was fairly rudimentary things. He wasn't telling us anything we didn't already know. But yeah. the fact that he was saying it and it was underlying some of the things that we know and we wanted to get the message across, I thought was really yeah. useful. Well, I mean, and you might say it's basic, but I think there's a lot of distilled wisdom in there. Um, and, and it's it's worth a watch. I, I'm a compulsive rewatcher. I tend to to rewatch things a lot. And that's one of those talks that's kind of been in in my general uh just queue of, of going back every once in a while and listening to him talk and yeah. you know that there, talk there has given things. me that talk has given me a question on my podcast every day <laughs> uh so it, you know i don't want to I, I could go on and on about about that talk but uh i, I don't want to avoid your question about you know if, if you're being targeted by nation state they will absolutely get in or not um i don't think that's necessarily the case i think part of the problem there is overgeneralization. we we like to think of nation states as homogeneously capable entities uh it basically says you know if you're being targeted by quote nation state where in reality nation state spans uh you know something as amazing as equation uh, relevant uh, all the way down to uh, you know, some Indian APT team that doesn't even secure their command and control servers and, and that's using, you know, Python malware, uh, you should be able to defend against that that sort of bottom tranche. You should even, you know, reasonably be able to defend against maybe the, the, the middle sector of, of sophistication, quote unquote. So what are we really discussing when it comes to nation state? And, and it's such a complex calculus at that point. Um, that I really do want to put an asterisk next to this idea that if nation state wants to get in, they will, because I've talked to people that are um, sitting in, in, in very powerful, powerful positions in our industry where they have decision-making power over the design of entire platforms and hardware. And, and I've sat there and said, Hey, you know, how are you doing threat Intel? How are you collecting telemetry on your platforms and so on? And they'll look at me and say, well, we don't think it's really that important because if nation state wants to get in, they will. And it's like, whoa, th- this you're not the person that should believe this. 
So I think it's important to take a step back and, and kind of couch that in, in, in within specific parameters and, and not let it stand as a monolithic myth. And nation states are not, in many cases, I mean, we call them sophisticated and that word gets thrown out, thrown out a lot. But in many cases, it's they're not relying on sophisticated ODAs and techniques to get in. They're getting in through, again, uh, the fact that you're not paying attention to the basics. Right. I think that was Rob Joyce's point as well, which was, you know, pay attention to the basics, get your get your shit together, and y- y- your 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 focus should be on raising the bar and raising the cost for attackers. So even if even if you li- live under this assumed compromise uh, war, uh, concept, you still are raising the bar, uh, uh, raising the cost for entry, and somehow uh, uh, mitigating your risk in that way. Right. I mean, you have to. And I, and I, I would like to tackle that on, on two different sides. Right. So let, let's talk about you're addressing the the lower end of, of the quote unquote sophisticated threat actors, which really aren't. I, I hate the term. I'm actually writing a paper now for Virus Bulletin kind of trying to address this notion of adversary metrics so that we can get away from the term a little bit. But if we're going to discuss unsophisticated nation state threat actors, then you're almost always looking at the same infection vectors. You're still basically talking about the basics. A lot of times they're even using commodity malware. Like I'm actually working on a campaign right now where the threat actor started with a lot of custom tooling and then eventually just kept going down the, you know, the sophistication slide, if you will, to where they're just leveraging commodity malware, $50 rats. And that's easier for them than burning their toolkit. Word docs, attachments, how much of that stuff is coming out with the same uh, CV 2012-0158 that's, you know, it's been plaguing us for six years uh, and it still works. So, you know, th- there's there's that side of the house. Then there's the other one where it's like, you know, if you were super paranoid, if you were genuinely concerned about the super sophisticated threat actors, I, I think both Dan Deere and, and Rob Joyce have put out these pearls about what genuinely concerns the really advanced threat actors. And I don't know of many people that have bothered to implement. Um, And at that point, I'm trying to remember what talk Dangier sort of brought this up at. I think it was actually a recorded future conference, our fund, maybe 2014 or 2015, uh, where he talks about the importance of having um, redundant systems uh, that, you know, are, are basically of different brands and different architectures that don't necessarily uh, need to support one another, but rather act as fail-safes. And that, to me, brings us to the notion of something Rob Joyce brought up, which is the out-of-band tap, right? When you have security systems that are watching and are not integrated with the general network, with the general perimeter, with the rest of your security solutions, that's actually a nightmare for advanced threat actors. And that's as simple as saying, you know, if I've got something mirroring all the traffic in my network that's just doing full capture, full packet capture and saving it somewhere else, uh, I don't care what threat actor you are, you just got caught from beginning to end of your operation with all of the tooling that you put in there, with all the traffic that you put in there, all of the machines that you went after. And that's in a system that in theory is not accessible to the rest of that network. There is no bouncing back from that. 
So to what extent, you know, we do have some sense of what that ultra advanced defense would look like. It's just, it's harder, it's, it's more expensive. And I, as much as people might complain and care and pretend that they do care, I don't think that they're really about to go after that, that level of defense. And the thing you mentioned there was Rob Joyce's recommendation that you do tapping at the at the router level. Do you get a sense that a lot of defenders are heading there, or or if if again if nation states are in your threat model, that's something that's standard today? Mm, I I don't think so. Um, I think that even if you, I'm not saying that it's that people aren't doing it. I'm not saying people shouldn't be doing it. I'm saying that even if you look at the uh, at the vendor market that in theory would provide for that need, I think you'd be stretched thin to find solutions, right? So if I want to tap, if I want to tap the network at my own house, I have to go about implementing this in, in a very kind of roundabout way, because there really isn't the hardware designed to do that. We don't, we don't, not, not as easily available, right? Yeah, you got to stitch have... a bunch of stuff together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you no longer have, you know, the, the old kind of hubs that are going to sort of like mirror all this traffic everywhere. And it's just, it's not easy. Uh, so try doing that at like a 10 gigabit per second level or, you know, at a, at a network that has 5,000 machines. I mean, we're talking about an issue of scale. You, you definitely don't want to take that network down in any way. Uh, and you're going to be talking about storage issues. So, you know, are you just going to start dumbing that down to only passive DNS or only, you know, there's a lot of hard decisions to make, and, and I don't think that a market has arisen uh, to give you a proper solution for that, which to me says that, you know, the, the most places aren't adopting this or, or don't have an avenue to do so. We know today that uh, you would guess that all, all nation states are investing in uh, uh, offense. Um, can you segment who are they, and we talked about what the sophistication mean, but who are this, uh, the sophisticated ones versus the rudimentary ones? And more importantly, are there some nation states that fly under the radar that we're not paying attention to that you think we're underestimating? So that's an interesting question, right? And uh, it's sort of it's sort of a shame that we're talking about it on on, on the on the notion of sophistication, but you know, for lack of a better uh, for lack of a better term or an easy to access metric, uh, you've got some obvious players. I mean, Five Eyes has been getting so much more attention over the past uh, four or five years, and and they haven't disappointed, right? They they are uh, every bit as good as we would hope them to be, or more so. However, you also have the notion of of nations with rule of law, and and operations that look genuinely hamstrung by lawyers, which is a it's a really interesting power dynamic that yeah, that's a real thing. Very often. Oh, absolutely. And and the guys in the Five Eyes uh, offensive space will tell you that there's there's we operate in 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 a different mindset, and there are so many limitations to what we can do just because the lawyers are over our shoulders saying, yeah, yeah. this is pushing the envelope too far." Absolutely. I mean, and that's and that's kind of the uh, the the irony of the whole Snowden madness uh, that that overtook the American intelligence community and the public, you know, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, we obviously all lost our minds about abuses of power, privacy and so on. But looking at having done extensive research on on some of these operations, finding the abuses is at least in the cyberspace. 
I think we'd be really hard pressed. So it's kind of an interesting notion of, of uh, hype versus reality uh, as far as abuse goes. And I, I think this is going to be really unpopular opinion to express. But uh, but you do get the sense that the lawyers have an have a way, way heavier handed um, decision making power than than even the notion of cyber acrobatics. Like, I'm sure the fort can do all kinds of magic. And it's just, you know, you're not even going to go there. And, and on the flip side, you have those uh, uh adversaries where that doesn't apply right and 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 it's funny because the the less that applies the less sophisticated they need to be in a sense and i think the 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 obvious ones are iran and and north korea where they have made headlines they've done all kinds of madness and the term irrational actor gets thrown around i don't think that that's accurate either but it's more about somebody whose incentives are just not aligned with the rest of the international community. So, you know, with, with Iran, for example, uh, you've got a lot of very unsophisticated developers. The malware is crappy. It's often just .NET. It's, you know, just not very good, but that hasn't kept them from doing wiping operations and doing all sorts of very loud uh, things, uh, even in, in semi-sophisticated environments, as you might expect, you know, like casinos and so on. So. Yeah, their campaigns are still efficient. Absolutely. I mean, and same same with Lazarus. I mean, the 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 North Korean teams they keep improving, but they I think when um, Jaime Blasco uh, and I worked on the Lazarus group, and then Yukos and Ryu worked with us after that. I want to say that the Lazarus group was extending as far back as two thousand and eight. Uh, you're talking about almost ten years of operations. All right, we're, um, we're, we're, we're making assumptions that people listening know who the Lazarus group is. Oh, right. back, back up just for a quick second and give me uh, give me a big picture of what we know about uh, offensive capabilities and operations out of North Korea. Uh, sure, absolutely. So um, let's let's see. So the way that we really went about this, I'd, I'd rather kind of break it down for you in the way that we ended up researching this because there were... Uh, sort of several operations that people uh, attributed to North Korea that had never been tied together. So things like what might be called Dark Soul, uh, then, you know, the Destover campaign, which is better known for, you know, being the wiping operation on Sony Pictures Entertainment, which is really when everybody kind of latches on to the notion that North Korea is out there doing crazy stuff online. Right, because it's on the front page of the New York Times. Right. You know, that's at the point at which everybody starts to care. But even after that, even a year after that, people hadn't clustered that into a cohesive picture of a threat actor. Uh, so one day, uh, Jaime Velasco and I are, we were trying to think of what to submit to SAS. Jaime, Jaime, I would point out, is CTO over at Alien Vault. I believe so. Right. Um, so he, he and I are just sitting there in San Francisco. We're trying to figure out what to submit to SAS. And uh, we were getting upset because FireEye had done something that you know they used to do very often, which was they released a, a bulletin saying, hey, we found this zero day being leveraged by a nation state threat actor. Uh, it, it was a zero day in Hangul, uh, which is a word processor, basically like Microsoft Office South Korea, or right? South yeah. Korea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they didn't tell anybody, you know, who was leveraging it. They didn't provide any IOCs publicly. And, you know, it was very kind of upsetting uh, as a researcher to sit there and say, hey, we have no, you know, we have no way of, of latching on to this. So we made it our mission to figure out who was using that. 
and uh, I started writing Yara rules and started hunting for samples. And just having to come at it from that disparate outsider approach actually meant that we built up this bulk of of rules of hunting rules that started to turn up all of this malware. And you know, we, we were a week into it, and I was staring at something like three or four hundred samples. So it was just a lot. So once we started to kind of try to cluster this together and figure out what we were looking at, we realized that we had a single threat actor that encompassed all of these well-known operations that people had attributed to North Korea in the past. So that's what for us kind of cemented the notion of of what we had, you know, at the time we codenamed them the interviewers. Uh, it became, once it you know, got released, it was known as the Lazarus Group in part because of Noveta's Operation Blockbuster and all these companies getting involved. Uh, but essentially, that's the moniker that symbolizes uh, North Korean operations as a whole. But we know that there are subgroups, even within Lazarus. There are subgroups, and, and we're starting to see splinter groups that, that don't really fit into the Lazarus tool set, like this whole Scarcroft, Group 123, and Sun Team. There's a few... Uh, this is getting so popular that uh, there's quite a lot of really good research into entirely new offshoots. So there's a lot happening there. And these offshoots are, are focused on different areas because one of the things that I think has also gone underreported is the North Korean focus on uh, uh, financial crime uh, or, sure. or, or just focused on making money, whether it's uh, uh, going after crypto wallets, uh, whether it's... Uh, you know, targeting SWIFT and really the infrastructure behind banking. Uh, we know that the North Koreans have these capabilities or have done it, if the attribution is correct. Right, which is fascinating. I mean, I think this is one of those points where um, our willingness to disconnect cyber as a realm from the rest of the world and, and, and crime in general and, and, and actions and judgments is keeping us from just coming out and saying, hey, we just watched a country conduct a bank robbery, which Correct. is sort of fascinating, right? It's I mean, amazing. When you, when you collapse that down, it, I mean, if, if, if Iran had walked into a bank in Lebanon, <laughs> like, you know, if our Iranian operators waving an Iranian flag had walked into a bank in Lebanon and, and held it hostage and stolen a bunch of gold bullion and cash, I mean, this would be an international incident. But that's the equivalent of exactly what happened. Except that Absolutely. it was in the cyber realm. Cyber realm and, and in several countries uh, at the same time, which is, I mean, we, we keep uncovering more either older bank heists or, um, or, or things that are just happening now, right? Poland, Vietnam, and, and Bangladesh, and so on. And isn't there a subset of, uh, uh, do you worry or do you think that there's a subset of a lot of these bigger bank robberies or, or these financial APT doing financial crime that's still under the radar? What percentage do you think we know about? Well, so when it comes to bank robberies, I think the problem is when you talk about crime where um, maybe a lot of the techniques and groups involved aren't well known or haven't been identified. But when money is missing, someone's going to eventually notice. Right. Um, whether they're willing to admit it or not is a whole different thing. But it's what we saw with Carbonac. And, and that's a group that has evolved really interestingly. So when when the guys at Great uh, discovered Carbonac in 2015, it was it was unthinkable. Like we were talking about a, a criminal APT 
not nation state sponsored, presumably, uh, that was doing bank heists at a massive scale. And right, by compromising the network on, in the back end and not, uh, you, you know, it was it was positioned as ATM heists, but it was much, much bigger than that because they were actually in the network using video feeds and so on just to figure out how that worked to be able to spit up the cash on the ATM. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they were doing, I mean, everything that, that you would do to make it a nightmare for an accountant, if they walk in and then wipe uh, the specific parts of the database, so you can't even find the transactions. I mean, it's 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 quite sophisticated. And at the time, I remember there were financial uh, like overseers and big institutions in the U.S. that got really mad and, and and balked and said, "Hey, you know, this is this is hype. This is all you know, some security company making this up, and and that's not how this works, and it's not possible." You fast forward two years, and then Carbonac. Uh, Carbon Act has changed a great deal. It has um, undergone quite a few sort of seismic shifts. The tools have shifted. Uh, they're using stuff like Cobalt Strike now. I, I've heard about another um, another backdoor, I think, called Batelier or something like that. Uh, basically, th this, this group has diversified. There's been a few high-end arrests, uh, but they are very much um, just a larger emboldened gang now going after hospitality sector, going after financial uh, sector going after POS systems. I mean, now they're just full on just robbing everybody left and right. Um, so it, it's an interesting evolution of what you can expect, but I don't expect it to be too quiet. If you're going to be removing money from people's wallets, somebody is going to notice. The researchers in the threat intel space, guys like you, the guys at Kaspersky, guys at Palo Alto, or guys at uh, Cisco Talos, uh, when I have conversations with them privately, they, I get the sense that they believe they know everything or 99% of everything. How real is that in terms of, in your opinion, how, how much of APT activity, what percentage of APT activity that we know, whether it's public or it's in these private reports that these companies are selling as part of their threat intel uh, platforms versus how many are under the radar still undetected? Uh, not not only from the big guys, but some of the other smaller players as well. So I've heard you ask this question to people multiple really times. Respect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like uh, you know, and everyone's got sort of a very set opinion in one way or the other. Uh, I'd actually kind of like to to break the paradigm of the question um, because I think there's a difference between awareness and tracking. And I think you're, that touches upon a problem in our industry that we don't discuss, which is there's such limited resources, uh, such limited research resources. It's so hard to do. Uh, there's so few people working this space competently that just because you became aware of somebody doesn't mean that you are still tracking them or are still capable of figuring out where they are. Right. So everybody researched Dooku uh, back in, in 2012. And nobody had an idea what was happening with Dooku until they, you know, kind of hit us across the face in 2015. Um, so, and I bring that up because while I think we might be aware of a bulk of nation-state operations, to then say that we are accurately tracking or or competently uh, have a sense of, of of what cyberspace looks like as far as nation state capabilities, I think is an, it's this sort of hubris and, and inaccuracy that I'm not on board with. And so, how do you break when, the percentage? Man, 
I don't know. I don't know how to because look, look at look at some of the outliers, right? You look at uh, Careto, which you know we presumably was Spain, and and look at Animal Farm, presumably France. Very very capable, highly sophisticated, really good tasking, prolonged operations. Uh, I think these both both are really noteworthy because the moment they got burned, they disappeared. Right, like, and you you can't you have to completely. make the assumption that they have multiple missions going on in multiple Absolutely. places because they're just sophisticated Absolutely. enough, motivated enough, well resourced, uh, with geopolitical reasons for doing these things. Whether it's you know tracking terrorism or or, or uh, national security interests, that you know that's the case of Five Eyes. That's the case they make when they're publicly talking about our offensive operations. Uh, you 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 have to assume that you know France has done much more than just animal farm. Exactly. But we've exactly. never seen we've never seen anything since. And even those people, I mean you're talking about specialized skills, right? I mean if you have brilliant operators and brilliant developers, like what do you think they closed shop and said, "Well, you know, we're going to go start like a Bitcoin ICO or whatever." No, they're like they're still in the business. They they've got to be doing something. And uh, and why haven't we seen more? Well, I think that's something that we should be more concerned about. Um, it's a great question. I mean, did they retool? I think Dooku is such a fascinating threat actor because it's one of the few, if not maybe the only case, where we see a resurgence of an advanced threat actor, right? So we, we saw Dooku get heavily, heavily burned in 2012, researched to bits. Right, and that was just, again, just providing background for people who are not, you know, uh, inside baseball into this threat intel space. This was Duku. The original Duku was part of Flame slash Stuxnet. There was all uh, all, all linkages there. So it, it, that the original Duku actually dates back to the Stuxnet years. Right, right. You know, it, part of the Duku tilted platform was used uh, to build Stuxnet. There were, I mean, there was some resource sharing with Flame, but I tend to consider Flame a very separate sort of thing, if, if not because. Well, I mean, probably the same country involved in both, but but sort of a different thing. Now, what's interesting about Dooku is super, super capable, running amazing ops, really good tooling. And if we had had this conversation in 2014, we might have put them under the same umbrella as Animal Farm and Careto, where we say, hey, they got burned and they went away. But then 2015, we see Dooku 2 come back a really loud way. But what was interesting is it also meant that you saw the evolution of a platform that was both very sophisticated, well-resourced, and very publicly burned. And what we realized was that they had figured out that if they retooled that platform to be entirely in memory using virtual file systems, using these sort of very interesting exploits, and um, also uh, operating inside of a network rather than inside of a single victim machine, uh, that they could basically fly under the radar and skip all these security solutions. Uh, Duke is a fantastic case study in this. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's equivalent of uh, beta software versus uh, uh, general purpose release software, where uh, uh, it, it, the, the, the evolution and modifications and just overall improvements to the platform uh, uh, allowed them to stay under the radar for so long and... Uh, uh, where the sophisticated word pops up when you realize what they had evolved to become. Right, and, and truly sophisticated. I mean, and, and I think some of the 
the few actors that genuinely merit the term sophisticated, uh, Dooku would definitely be in there. Uh, what you see is not just expensive tooling. What you see is a lot of uh, careful operator tradecraft, uh, systematized um, changes in, in TTPs. This is not about somebody kind of using the right keyboard, um, typing the right things or not. And, and I, it, it sort of gets baked into the way that the operations function. And I think it's important to bring that up even with Dooku once again, because there were examples of Dooku 1 operators mistyping things in command and control servers. Like we could see, you know, investigators had seen it in the logs versus Dooku 2, which I mean, was, was being run basically without a hitch. They had systematized all that approach. Right, and it it, be, it became uh, um, again again the use of the word sophisticated. It became a truly sophisticated uh, 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 campaign. Yes, uh, you have spent a lot of time uh, researching and writing about uh, various things. So I, I, I actually have a lot of questions for you. And one was the ethics and perils of being a threat intel researchers and uh, researcher in this nation state realm. You have become, as a researcher in this space, more or less an information broker. And we've seen public reports recently about a nation-state campaign against ISIS, terrorist organization, being burnt. Uh, how do you, as a researcher, kind of balance that, uh, that the ethical issue of, you know what, I'm, I'm detecting and publicizing and burning a campaign that's stopping really, really nasty, bad people. Um, at the same time, you know, I have a product and I'm, I'm, uh, my task is to protect the people that pay me to protect them. Is that something you think about a lot? Talk me through what goes into the, the decision-making around public, publicizing a campaign where you know, and, and again, this might be a two-part question. One, do you know for sure that that campaign is going after terrorist organization and trying to pinpoint bad people? And when you do know, how do you make that judgment? Well, so this is a really interesting question. Uh, and for the people that didn't see the paper, so Ethics and Perils of APT Research was published in the Virus Bulletin Conference, I want to say 2014. Uh, so it's been a while. And it was like my the, the first time that I kind of sat around and, and tried to use some of my background and say, hey, you know, let's discuss this on a more conceptual level and, and see how people respond. But nothing has changed because we've seen just very no. recently examples of, of, of this ethical question come into play. Right. And, and you know, and, and so, so to, it, it's a good time to bring the question back up and it's a good time to kind of treat it with a little more nuance. And, and I hope that, you know, people will allow a certain level of nuance uh, without it just being apologism for for great, for example, or, or for Kaspersky or for anybody else involved in this, because it's not a simple question. It really isn't. I mean, um, basically, when you're investigating any kind of APT campaign, uh, you don't even necessarily know that it's an APT when you're starting. So let's start there. You're probably looking at an anomaly of some sort that lets you know that something is off, whether it's an incident response engagement or somebody just gave you a single sample and says, hey, this is weird. It was somewhere it wasn't supposed to be, but I don't know what it is. And a lot of it, a lot of these uh, research uh, projects start just like that. Someone sends Absolutely. along a sample and says, hey, this might be interesting or this this thing mm -hmm. looks, you know, uh, 
off. Yeah. And, and you know, it, people don't understand the value of anomalies. Like, the, you know, having been in the AV space, uh, some of the most brilliant developers in that space, all they do is build automated systems to detect anomalies. And they, they have a high tolerance for false positives. You know, maybe they come into the office and, you know, they get 30 leads and 25 of those are garbage, but five of those are going to be really interesting. And that's where the beginning of, of a lot of investigations come from. So you, you know, put yourself into the shoes of, of a threat researcher, you get a single sample, somebody has said something that tells you it's valuable, like, hey, you know, this sample was found in, in this military organization in, 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 you know, I don't know, Taiwan or whatever. So you know that it's probably interesting, but that's all you know. So from there, you're going to reverse the sample. You're going to write rules to find more similar samples. You're going to profile the command and control servers. You might try to, you know, kind of probe them depending on, on what your uh, aversion level is for getting into that kind of thing. Um, and and from you, you're just going to be collecting more samples. You're going to collect an understanding of, of the malware family. Maybe you can tell if it's related to other threat actors or not. Uh, but if if it's not, then you're really waiting in the dark. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you here, but I have to, and and I don't want us to get lost on the original question. But this is important, and it, it, it ties back to this notion of 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 malware researchers or APT researchers being paleontologists. Right. And 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 I want to back up here for a second to help people understand what actually goes into uh, doing this research uh, from from the beginning to the end. And it, it'll tie into when you start to know who the actor is, when you start to, uh, you know, with some nuance, try to piece together whether you know for sure this is targeting a terrorist organization, for instance. So Vitali Kamluk, a, a former colleague of ours, wrote a, a, what I thought was a seminal piece, really helping people to understand what goes into a research project. And it starts with, you know, adding detection for known modules. After you've done this, you know, or you've gotten the original sample, or you've seen an anomaly somewhere, you start adding detection, collecting samples, reversing the samples, decrypting encryption and compression schemes, you know, just understanding and figuring out the lateral movement. And there's a massive list. It's it's a 15 point list that still isn't as comprehensive as it should be. Mm -hmm. But I think as you answer this question, it's important for people to understand that you have to map CNC infrastructure, set up sinkholes, analyze traffic that's coming in and the communication protocols, crawling hosts, taking down acquiring images of compromised servers. Like there's a whole massive, massive trove of work that goes into. At what stage do you start to get the picture? Okay, and how, so you, you know what I mean? It's complicated yeah, and, I, and I know, and but no, I'm trying to keep... you're bringing it up. Because the truth is that at no point in any of that are you likely to get the picture in any definitive sense, right? Like I, I, the picture comes into view either through victimology or um, from what's being collected, which you're not necessarily going to see. Maybe you'll see the info stealers being configured to steal certain kinds of information. Right. Or, and when you say victimology and you start talking about this, you're, you're starting to pinpoint where you see surges in certain activity in certain countries, uh, sectors. You start to get a sense of what is being uh, uh, what is being exfiltrated and you try to, you know, Google around for geopolitical implications that might say, why would someone be interested in looking at a telco in Niger? 
and right. you start to you know piece that thing to get in your head again with nuance and again it's a lot of uh, supposition and speculation right right and, and I and I think it's important to highlight the supposition and speculation angle of it because l- let me put it to you this way maybe you're looking at an operation that only targets terrorists I mean that's the ideal operation to to hopefully not burn and to walk away from with a relatively clean conscience but maybe it's not maybe you're looking at an operation that targets terrorists and also targets academics in western europe with the same platform and then you don't have a clear-cut decision to make correct because the mission might be twofold or threefold or you might have subgroups within the group who are using the same set of tools to go after terrorists but exactly doing some additional uh, doing an additional mission somewhere else that might not be tied to that and that ties into this whole ethical question and you don't have granular tools. And I think that's something that people forget, right? You don't, you, as, as a threat researcher or as a, a malware analyst for an AV company, your tools, like what you can do with the information that you get is very, very limited. You can publish it, you can provide, you, you can enable detection for it, or you can not. And there, there isn't a situation where you get to selectively detect and sort of do your your job and fulfill your ethical duty to your customers who are paying you to provide them with that information or with that detection and, and who rely on you for defense and also somehow you know fulfilling the 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 kind of human obligation of not standing in the way of people that are you know trying to to defend uh, others it's not clear cut and you you can't go in there and say hey we're going to detect this sample but not the other one we are going to detect this bit but not that one we are going to protect this customer and not the other one because that's just not how the tools work but let's let's assume just again speculate and assume that a, a threat intel team or a group of researchers can pinpoint that this is absolutely you know a a, a campaign going after really really bad people is it ever appropriate, in your opinion, for a, a security vendor to say, uh, let me not detect, or I'll detect and not publicize? Uh, uh, how, 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 how do you make a decision uh, without getting yelled at? Well, I think it's easier to feign ignorance uh, of these sorts of things than, than we might uh, admit. But you do get into rare situations like Reagan was one where a lot of uh, the security industry started yelling bloody murder because they realized that that Microsoft and some other companies had been aware of it being there and didn't publish it until, you know, Symantec and Kaspersky uh, and I think the Intercept kind of years later. Years, years, like detections have been there and then disappeared. Like just people, people had known about Reagan for a long time. Uh, so you do get into these sort of sticky situations about, you know, whether you're fulfilling your obligations or not and, and what the best way to go about that is. Um, and, and it's interesting because I'm sure like if you took the case of, of, of an AV involved in that situation, I'm sure, let's say Belgacom had an AV provider. So you're not talking about just terrorists you're not talking about just pedophiles you're talking about a, a a massive platform that had been deployed in all kinds of collection situations and you know since apparently ethics mostly apply when we're talking about you know europeans um 
then you know there were some European victims in there that people were very uncomfortable with. Right, right, uh, and and I did notice that you dodged the question. <laughs> no, I, I'm not trying to dodge it. I'm not trying to dodge it. Uh, it's just I think that this is one of those situations where. Um, the general cases are harder than the specifics. So if we're all going to sit here and talk about ideals, then we should never not tell people about what we find and we should always detect, but then we should never burn, you know, counterterrorism. Uh, and, and that's it's really easy to live in that world of generalities. Now, if we're talking about the specifics, I think if you go through the process of investigating a counterterrorism operation, uh, chances are you won't know it's CT until you're 90% of the way. Be You've honest already... with me. There, there are yeah. times when you do know, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there are times when you do know. Um, and, and it's not beyond us to research the crap out of it and then put it in a drawer. Right. That happens. That happens. I mean, it, it, look, it's not – as a, if you're working in the AV industry – if you provide detection for the malware, I mean, you have fulfilled your obligation. Publishing that's fair, yeah. And, and going through the PR rounds and, and getting a lot of attention for it. I mean, that's that's icing on the cake. But if you take that, and I know some really good researchers who've gone through this, right? They 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 do amazing research. They find something really cool. They they set detections for the malware, and they go, you know what? I'm not comfortable with publishing this, and they put it in a drawer, and they're done. And hmm. and as far as your that's what happened with Reagan. Your, that was well, largely, in a sense, what happened with Reagan. People kind of they knew they knew uh, how uh, important it was, but maybe deliberately decided to turn a blind eye. I uh, don't know. Maybe maybe uh, I don't know. I think the Reagan story is a little more complex because there's Reagan was not purely CT. Reagan was a situation where people were playing country favoritism. And as much as, you know, I'm an American and I love my country and I don't want to stand in the way of, you know, the fine people in the IC that are doing things to keep us safe. Uh, when you're talking about this from the perspective of a, a, a larger company, a multinational corporation that has an obligation to a lot of countries and a lot of customers to say, hey, we're just not going to detect anything five eyes. Um, but we're still going to sell to people not necessarily within those countries. Uh, you you are definitely operating in an ethically murky area, right? right. We, we, Reagan is not a counterterrorism operation. So when you're talking about condoning espionage, uh, just based on with, who the actor is, yeah, yeah, just with a blanket edict, which you know, not to say that that the Five Eyes folks have ever done anything wrong or never done anything wrong, but in itself, as a general question, um, I don't think that it should be quite as comfortable a decision to make. Right, and we 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 know for a fact that there are there are big, popular, well-known threat intel vendors who, for their entire lifetime, has never seen a Five Eyes actor. Never. They just, they've never seen They don't it. exist. It's, it's amazing. And that has um, to, and that has to be a, like a, 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 a deliberate corporate decision. Yeah. I mean, Hey, go, go find all of the equation reports out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the listeners know what we're talking about and I don't want to like, you know, no. delve into it too much, I, it, but it keeps popping up on Twitter and some of the places well, I hang out where, you know, what is, what is 
appropriate and what is not as it relates to detection and release um, publicly burning uh, well, CT so campaigns. I'm not so I don't want to get away from the CT question. And again, I'm not trying to dodge it. But since we touched on the you know, I, I brought up equation and we've touched about people uh, reporting and not reporting. We saw the most ridiculous, unbelievable situation happen in the past two years. Uh, which is this whole release of Shadow Brokers and and Vault 7 and Vault 8, um, which is absolutely, I mean, it, it's flabbergasting. It's unbelievable. I remember being at the Discovery talk of, of Equation in 2015, and we said, you know, look at all this stuff that, that we found out and that we could put out there. We'll never really know what was happening in there. We'll never really know, you know, the extent of these tools and the capabilities and so on. To, to fast forward two years and be staring at at source code and logs and operator tools and, and builders and so on, it's sort of fascinating. And it's not to spit in the face of, of uh, Equation or the Fort or anything, but it's rather to say this is a situation where no one in the security industry wanted to research a, a well-known threat because they deemed it uh, exonerated based on the owner and then that got open sourced right now you're in this uncomfortable situation of what do i do exactly and and, and i think you know i think that's one of those situations where you know it's it's ironic in the worst possible circumstances which is to say sure based on who owned them you you might not have wanted to touch that before but now everybody has it you know we were seeing people leveraging those exploits and some of the shadow broker troves within hours or days, uh, you know, popping routers in, in Pakistan and, 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 you know, obviously WannaCry being the, the big ticket item on that. Um, how do you then, you know, in clean conscience say, hey, we, we don't research this or we didn't before or we will now or we just still won't touch it? I mean, where does your corporate stance lie versus your responsibility to your customers? Uh, that's a conversation we can have forever. Uh, we are coming up against the one hour mark. I want to leave you with this, uh, let you go with this. What are you working on right now? What's what's interesting, fascinating uh, that we haven't heard about um, that you're heavily focused on today? Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of really split right now between a bunch of different projects and, and I wish I could essentially clone myself because um, I'm really invested in several projects at the same time and, and not necessarily, uh, I don't necessarily have the time to take them on as deeply as I'd want to, but um, I'm currently, like I said before, working on a paper on adversary metrics. Uh, Virus Bulletin has become kind of my yearly commitment to publishing something more conceptual and taking the time to write, you know, a, a well fleshed out, you know, 15, 20, 30 page paper and, and, and address a topic that I might not otherwise. So this time around, I'm kind of declaring war on, on the, uh, you know, word sophisticated, which none of us like, but there's no point in complaining about it if we don't actually set up some accurate metrics of saying, hey, you know, this is, these are some different areas uh, in which we might characterize the, the capability or lack thereof of a threat actor. Um, and to sort of go through some of those examples and go through some of that that framing and framework. And that's um, coming later this year? Yes, sadly, quite 
a, a long ways away because the way VB works, that'll that'll be coming out in October. Um, but you know, that's one of those things. Uh, I'm working on uh, sort of improving this um, code similarity engine that um, I've been working with uh, Vicente Diaz, another old colleague of ours, um, for quite some time. And I, you know, I've just been trying to improve it and, and sort of use it as this tool for code reuse and kind of going back and forth in my head as to whether this is the kind of thing that's worth open sourcing um, or if you, you know, whether you're helping defenders more or if you're helping attackers more by putting that out there. So th that's a that's a very real ethical qualm that I'm, I'm debating at this time. Yeah, and you're doing a couple of talks around this as well. Yeah, so, I, you know, and I'm happy to go out and talk about it, right, and explain how it works because I think that right now a lot of high-end research is depending on code similarity and we see blogs about this all the time but most people don't understand how it's being done uh where some of the pitfalls are because there are definitely pitfalls um and then sort of where the advantages are why it's scalable you know what why it works so i'm you know i'm, I'm gonna be at hushcon i'm gonna be in SummerCon. Uh, i'm debating submitting it to, to b-sides lv um, just to talk about this and I, I, it is one of those moments where obviously it's me nerding out about something that I'm passionate about but also I think that there's value in taking what used to be a secret technique of ours you know let's say two years ago uh, and now it's important for people to get how this thing works yeah I'm looking forward to seeing it at SummerCon I, uh, I'll be there in June I'll see you at SummerCon Thank you very much, my friend, for coming on the podcast. Uh, we'll have to do it again because uh, my, my list, I still haven't touched a bunch of things on my list. My pleasure. Absolutely.